Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins for the second time in a couple of days. I'm going solo. Uh, we were originally going to record the weekly show proper today, myself and Jeff, but we learnt that the Ashes, the men's Ashes squad is going to be announced for Australia on Wednesday, so we thought we'd hold back for a day and that'll come next in the feed, followed by story time and all the rest of it. But what we have today, well, I'm sitting in the Lord's Library, at the MCC Library, here at the original home of cricket. This is where we first interviewed Lawrence Booth, the editor of the Wisdom Cricketers Almanac, Jeff and I, on the night that Jeff won the uh, Book of the Year, actually, in two 2019. We've spoken to him on three subsequent occasions, but there has been no wisdom dinner to attend, and thus we haven't been at Lords. We've been doing it through Zoom, owing to the fact that the the wisdom dinner was obviously called off in 2020 due to COVID. Likewise, 2021, and it wasn't quite ready the long room to to come back post COVID last year. So this is a celebration, I suppose, in, in more ways than one. Tonight, I'm decked out in my tuxedo, and I just had Lawrence Booth with me for 60 minutes of power on the Almanac this year, edition 160, the 12th, which he's been in charge for. In the last couple of years, these interviews have ended up stretching to sort of 90 minutes to two hours, but owing to the fact that we've uh, we've both got places to go, him more than me, Lawrence, who's uh, off to give his big speech in the long room tonight, um, we, we had to cut it where we cut it, but we got through quite a lot, uh, and his editor's notes this year, is, uh, as I explain as we go through, uh, a tour de force, I think I described it to him, and uh, I stand by that. Um, he, Lawrence, this is, has been doing this job for a long time. He was a relatively young editor. I think he was the youngest editor, actually, when he took over. Uh, back in, must have been 2012, 2013, something like that. But yes, this deep into his tenure, he's got the authority, as he always has, but more so in the years that he uh, remains in the job to, to really go both barrels on test cricket especially and the um, the direction of travel, which we've, Jeff and I, talked about a lot in the last, well, I guess eight or nine months and uh, the headwinds that test cricket has in, in a world that's increasingly dominated by private money and the IPL owners and the influence that'll have on the schedule in the fullness of time. So um, I hope you enjoy that section in particular and all the other bits and pieces that we come to along the way. I should note on the way through uh, that Neil from the MCC Library has kindly, as I've walked in today, shown me a great get, a pamphlet or, or a program from the 1932-33 Bodyline Test Match at Adelaide, a test match that I've written about quite a bit in the past, both at university uh, and in my former life in, in politics and we've spoken about on, on story time and and all the rest of it. Well, yes, I, I have now seen the official program for all that day, so I'll take a couple of photos and pop that on the Discord page, uh, and I might tweet them out as well. So that was a nice bonus, uh, having uh, walked into this beautiful old library where hopefully I'll get the chance to spend plenty of time in the summer of 2023. All right, with no further ado, here is Lawrence Booth. It's Final Word with Adam Collins. Uh, Jeff's in Melbourne. I'm in London. Specifically, I'm in the MCC Library where Jeff and I interviewed Lawrence Booth four years ago, five wisdoms ago, if you like. He's with me again. It feels like, and we're in our tuxedos, ready to have the, the Wisdom Almanac dinner this evening. It does feel like something akin to cricket going back to normal again. A dinner in April in the long room to celebrate uh, the achievement of another edition of the book, uh, as opposed to the last three years where that's not been possible. G'day. It's crazy. Yeah, thanks for having me, Colin. Four years, it's gone in a flash, hasn't it? Absolutely astonishing. But it's lovely to be back. It, like you say, it does feel like the start of the English summer, and um, I think we're all raring to go. 1,616 pages is the final count, certainly by the PDF I was looking at. I, I'm sure that was close to the final edition. Your first, I guess, proper post-COVID 
book as well, acknowledging that the last couple of years you were compromised by the lack of cricket that was played. How does this shape up when the, when the brick is on the shelf? Well, it's the longest one I've done. So this is my 12th. And all right. the others have been 1,500 and something, apart from the, the COVID edition, which was 1,200 and something. So it's the longest one, which actually is sort of an interesting moment because it makes you think about the amount of cricket you have to cover now. You have to cover women's cricket more seriously than, than we used to. Uh, there are more T20 franchise tournaments around. So it's it, it's interesting, actually, when the, we, we saw the extent of the book this year, we thought, hang on, we've got to think about how we do it next year. Are we covering it all properly? Are we giving proper weightage? What needs to be cut? Matthew Engel once said that editing wisdom was like pruning a tropical forest. You know, you always <laughs> had to take bits out each year to keep it within bounds. Um, so I'm hoping next year it'll be 1,500 and something again. Understood. Yeah, so the 160th edition of the the good book. Uh, in the preface, before we get, I think what we'll do today, I'm mindful that we're actually at the dinner and thus you'll, you'll have to go off and do your thing in a couple of hours. So we probably won't do the 90-minute, the two-hour um, chat that we've done in the past, but we'll give it our best shot using your editor's notes as the primer for that. But yeah, just to acknowledge that in the, in the preface part of the book, you refer to, well, first of all, the Wisdom Trophy coming back. We'll get into a bit more detail on that later um, after the abominable decision to get rid of it and make it the Richards Botham Trophy for England West Indies Test matches. As I say, we'll we'll return to that. But getting Shane Warne's obituary and um, a proper series of essays about uh, Shane Warne's passing, which wasn't possible last year because he he died too close to publication date. Yeah, well, that was uh, it was an interesting one. People sometimes say, presumably, you don't want anything big to happen in cricket between going to press and publication, which is usually about six or seven week window. Last year, the big thing was Shane Warne dying in that window, which um, I'm fairly relaxed about because it means we can give it a proper run yeah. in the following year's book. People expect to read his obituary in Wisdom 2023. It's the year after he died. Gideon Haig, you know, you get the, you get the best on the best, really. Gideon yeah. writing about Shane Warne was a lovely piece. Andy Zaltzman did a statistical rap. And then we had each of his sort of landmark test victims, his 100th through to his 700th, talking about the challenge of facing him. Uh, and that, that was quite interesting, actually. You know, three of those seven are English, not surprisingly, because they were his favourite opponents and terrorised them for, for, for many years. And some of the things they said, Alex Stewart said that uh, he wished he'd been, he hadn't allowed Australia and wanted to dominate England so much. He wished he'd attacked him more. It's probably easy to say now. But um, uh, Trescothic, I think, made the point that uh, against people like Murley and, and Cumbley, there were always moments where you felt like you could score runs off them, but Warren never gave you that. He never eased the pressure, if you like. You could never just knock him to mid-wicket for a single. And then and Strauss said Warren seemed to know what you were going to do before you did. So they're kind of interesting insights from these sort of poor, tortured England batters down the yeah. decades that summed up Warren's greatness, actually. Yeah, and Jack Callis as well. We, we, that, that 300th wicket sticks in the memory for how late in the evening it was at the SCG, but Callis saying that as a young man, Warren saying to him the week before at Melbourne, no one's played better against me than you and the next week uh, Warren picking him up as wicket 300 <laughs> a googly around the wicket in the dark at the SCG to win a test match amazing yeah and we got that picture actually of Callis playing forward and you think how has that ball got through there <laughs> um, so yeah summed up as genius did you consider putting him on the cover I know Warren's been on there twice in the past but was there a was there a moment when you thought that that might work for you this year well possibly except that then you know Basball came along and uh, you know Stokes and McCullum seemed like the obvious candidates by the end of the year so you know you, 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 you're thinking about the cover changes throughout the year but you're really waiting to see what happens. I think those two probably trumped Warren, despite Warren's greatness. Not a bad effort from Gideon getting cunt into the book twice <laughs> inside the first, I think, 200 words of his 
otherwise completely elegant piece. Not to say that isn't elegant and eloquent as well, but um, that can't have happened often. By the way, he's quoting some, something, T- Terry Jenner, I think it is, or someone with Terry Jenner on yeah. the night of the ball of the century at a dinner crowded around at the MCG watching Warren do what he did. Exactly. He's quoting Jenner watching, because he said, Jenner had said to Warren, just make sure your first ball is on the spot. Don't try anything crazy. And of course, he produces the ball of the century to Mike Gatting, which leads to this... Uh, Expletive from Jenna, and look, I mean, our attitude to, to expletives has always been just, you know, spell them out. I mean, it's funny because the Daily Mail, my newspaper, did the serialisation. They began yes. with this piece, and I, th- I thought, how are they going to handle this? Of course, there's lots of asterisks, but we're, which we always think draws more attention to the word on the page, you know, vis- visually. So we're, we're, always, we're quite relaxed. I'm not sure all readers are as, as relaxed as we are, but we're fairly relaxed. Let's see how they feel. I think maybe Gideon's byline on top of the piece, he might get a bit more leeway than someone like that. me, for example. <laughs> and, and, yeah, there's, there's lots in there. It's a great piece, but I wasn't going to start there, but we've come this far. When the Great Southern Stand went up in 1991, the reflection that not, um, not naming it after a player felt the most natural thing, whereas as soon as Shane Warne passed away, it was the most obvious thing in the world to name it after him to sum up the the impact he had in the intervening years. Absolutely. Well, that, that said everything about him, didn't it? You know, you had you had these all these rules in place that made sense at the time, and then someone comes and subverts them, and that that was worn in a t- to a t. And Andy Zaltzman, a bit of brilliance from him to finish off that group of worn pieces, breaking it up into sort of four phases of Warren's career. I never thought of it that way until Andy spelled it out so neatly. And you are reminded, and you know, Jeff and I spoke about this in our tribute to, to Shane Warren last year, that there was a genuine time, um, a, a legitimate period of time, where he could have finished up between sort of 1998 when, when the injuries first started through to 2001. There was no sure thing he'd go on and have that second act. No, that's right. And actually, I mean, Andy's particularly good on his record against India, which was something like 43 wickets at 47 in 14 tests. And he, make, he makes the point that Warren's first two tests were against India and then nine of the others were sort of either side of his shoulder surgery. So he was rarely at his best against India. And then, of course, he broke a... Did he break a finger before that Mumbai test, which was on where Michael Clark took six for nine? You'd have expected Warren to have massaged his figures a bit then. So, you know, he, he's very good. He said, you know, making the point that even in his even against his weakest opponents, there were sort of mitigating factors. But of course, against England, South Africa, New Zealand, all over them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in the editor's notes, the bit you had on on Shane Warne, I mean, we discussed before that the length of time between the, the proper tribute that you're able to afford him. But just a reminder, too, that he was named as one of the players of the century barely halfway through his career. It still stands out and still feels right. Yeah, that's right. That, that didn't really occur to me until I sort of sat down to write. I thought, hang on, this guy was still had another seven years of his career to go. And the, the, what happened was there were 100 experts around the world who, who voted for the, the, the cricketers of the century. And clearly enough of them felt that Warren was still going to be worth his place when he retired. So it was, I suppose in a way it was a punt, but actually they knew they'd already seen enough. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I like how you draw a through line between Warren and Baseball, because a big part of your editor's notes this year, which we'll come to in a sec, is about the McCullum-Stokes revolution and A, how much he would have enjoyed it, but B, the extent to which subtly he, he might have influenced the way that people like Stokes and McCullum think about Test Match Cricket. Yeah, I, I think one of the many sadnesses about him going early was that he didn't get to see England play the way they did. I think he'd have loved it. It would have been mm. very interesting to see how he would have commentated on the Ashes this summer with Australia playing, I expect, their their normal game, which is a very strong game, and England going sort of you know, hell for leather. I, I think Warren might have come down on England's side, actually, and, and not supported them, but been critical of the Australians for not matching them. That's my hunch. So it's one of the great what-ifs. We've, we've missed out on it. So the, the notes by the editor, it's always a, an important part of the book. It's, the I think, the, the section of the book that people return to years later and get a sense of what 
maybe what the cricketing establishment thought at the time. That's that's how I interpret it anyway. You, when you sit down to write it, I know you do it through the course of a year and you're always thinking about what, what might meet the criteria, but it feels like this year that you're more strident than ever, that you've made a decision that you are going to play pretty much every shot. I mean, is that a <laughs> is that a, is that something that was front of mind or is it more subconscious? Inspired by Basball, playing my shots. <laughs> um, well, actually, you know, so when I wrote the, the notes for last year's book, there was a lot of doom and gloom around cricket in general. There was the racism scandal with Azim Rafiq. England's test team had, were falling to pieces. There wasn't much good news. So actually to be able to begin with two pages of Basball was, was actually quite uplifting. Then what I think what you're talking about mainly is the my criticism of the way cricket in general is going, the, 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 the extent to which T20 franchise cricket is, is choking the rest of the game. Where will we be in five years' time? So I guess an old trope in a way for the wisdom notes um you'd sort of expect to read that a bit in the wisdom notes I, I happen to feel it quite strongly and i think we have reached a you know this january was a was a huge month in that respect we had five t20 franchise tournaments around the world overlapping with each other players flitting here and there impossible to keep track i like t20 cricket my contention is that we've gone too far the balance has gone too far test cricket will die out there's talk now of saudi arabia hosting a, a t20 tournament a country that hasn't produced any uh, cricketers of note really I know their women's team is sort of getting up and running but it would essentially be a parasitic operation a bit like the ILT20 in the UAE the, what, are the administrators clear about where the game is going I'm not sure they are I think yeah. they're, they're, they're chasing the quickest buck well the way you get to it is by talking about you know test cricket needing the kiss of life to use your words that Stokes and McCullum have have given Test cricket over the last 12 months. You know, you describe it as the most relaxed revolution in sporting history and go through some of the extraordinary numbers. Like Johnny Bairstow at one point making 589 runs in 578 deliveries with four tonnes in about three weekends or, or whatever it was. The 506 for four in 75 overs that England made at Rolpindi in November. The the Jessup stat that we keep getting force-fed, even though it's probably not true because no one counted balls back then. Um, that record that, that Jessup, in theory, holds and someone will, will surely be at some stage and, and the comparison be it wins England one from 17 then nine from 10 or most ducks ever in a calendar year followed by most sixes in a calendar year I mean it just jumps off the page how different the conversation is from memory when you released the almanac last week it was the same or might have been the weekend before Rob Key was appointed as director of cricket which was the first domino to fall if you like but yeah the, the framing around England is so very different it's astonishing really and no, no one saw it coming in fact when Stokes replaced Root. There were there was some concern among some of the, the journos here that um, there's going to be too much on his plate. You know, he's already. W- would this be the, the the final straw? His knees struggling. You know, we still know, don't know what's going to happen with his knee this summer in the in the Ashes. Um, but he's risen to the challenge spectacularly, and and I think it's partly because he thinks his legacy is already secure. It's a bit like Brendan McCullum. They they've got a in a way they've got a free crack at these the, these new tactics. And their genius has been to convince everyone to come along for the ride, to banish the fear of fear. You know, that, that is sport's holy grail. Everyone's tried it. Everyone talks about it, but they appear to have done it. And it's wonderful to watch. I mean, I don't know whether this is going to be a sort of a dead cat bounce for Test cricket and once Stokes and McCullum disappear off into the sunset, you know, Test cricket will go back to being uh, what it was. Or will it inspire other teams? I mean, Tim Southey declared quite imaginatively Karachi against Pakistan. Um, Barbara's arm with a but, declaration. Well, that was, yeah, he just misunderstood the whole thing, hadn't he? So that, that didn't quite work out. Um, but at least he was thinking a bit differently. I think India and Australia are interesting. I, I suspect that they wouldn't have enforced a follow-on against New Zealand at Wellington. In fact, there's no chance they would have enforced a follow-on. They'd have just crushed New Zealand into the ground and won the series 1 or 2-0. 
England, I think, wanted to sort of perhaps have a bit more free time in New Zealand, uh, and they they took it as the uh, the the attacking option. I, I remember thinking at the time, interesting. This is the only possible way New Zealand can get back into this game is if they get another crack. England should probably have chased two five eight. But look, here we are talking about a one run defeat, fourth instance ever of a team winning after following on. These are, these are great things for Test cricket. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, and I think this is where it gets lost a little bit. There, there is. There is a great story about Test cricket in the last 12 months, but we can't help but think about five years in the future. But nevertheless, to stay with the positive bit, the fact that Stokes, in the middle of all this, released a a documentary, which, you know... I didn't think was the best documentary ever made. It obviously was was a, a bit of a whitewashing in some areas and was very much Stokes's perspective. But what it did do was give a great sense of how hollowed out he was just one year before. Like the Ben Stokes of the middle of summer 2021 when he wasn't playing cricket at all, when he was considering retirement. Remember when it was even mooted that he could play in the 2021 22 ashes it felt like it was sort of a Lazarus rising moment. This is the same guy who's pulled this off. His career throughout has been this extraordinary roller coaster excuse the cliche but I mean when we sat here four years ago I remember you writing in the editor's notes that year after Ben Stokes having the the court case run through 2018 you're like oh I want to see the the Ben Stokes of old back I want him sort of to let his bat do the talking and then he has the summer of his life and now um, the way in which you, you explain the way he's evolved is the 34 runs he took off Josh Baker's over in that county game at New Road last year and the first thing that Stokes did was get on the phone and text him to, to wish him well and hope he was okay. Yeah and I think so I think the I think I said his, his empathy had sort of gone through the roof I think he's the experiences he had um, have, have taught him that People can make mistakes and still come back. He he puts an arm around the guys who need it in the dressing room. Think of someone like Jack Leach, who perhaps under Joe Root didn't always feel best utilised or, or best loved. Um, I mean, Root's a lovely guy, but perhaps you know bowling Leach for sixty overs against Craig Brathwaite, uh, yeah. it w- wasn't working. No, Stokes <laughs> Stokes was giving him the new ball. He took ten wickets in a Test match at Headingley, where Shane Warne, by the way, never took a ten. For, uh, you know, never did particularly well as a seamer's paradise, uh, and just he ended up with forty six Test wickets last year. I mean quite high average but but nevertheless he was made to feel part of the team and I thought that Leach in a way embodies Stokes's excellent man management and would he have been capable of that pre his his break from the game I, I don't know but I think it, what it has given him is uh, an insight into human frailty and has exploited that uh, that makes it sound more calculating than it is but he has used that brilliantly as a captain and it could lead towards a barnstorming Ashes series here later in the year I mean it, it feels like the the best setup for an Ashes we've had well since 2005 really it does I mean it's an interesting one isn't it because so Australia haven't won in England since 2001 mainly because they haven't played this, the moving ball very well any any kind of lateral movement either through the air off the seam so you'd think well if England stick to that you'd probably back them but Stokes wants fast and flat pitches which actually probably brings Australia's attack more into it and will and will help their batters I mean Smith and Labuschagne might be licking their lips at that prospect. I don't know whether England can produce five flat and fast pitches given the conditions and so on. I think I took it more as a message to his team that we're going to keep playing aggressive cricket. There's going to, there can be no backward step, rather in the way that Owen Morgan would never allow any doubt to creep into his white ball revolution. Stokes has done exactly the same with the test team. No no sign of weakness, no sign of uh, of regression. Send the message both to his team and the opposition. It should be a it should be a cracker, shouldn't it? I don't I don't see there being many draws unless there are three days of loss to rain in a game. I take England to win. It could be three two. It could be four one. You just don't know. It could be random. Yeah. But it should it should be an absolute cracker. And yet, through all of this, the FTP last year was harrowing reading. If you read between the lines, I mean, as you point out, South Africa only have 
two have one two series rather when they play more than two tests over the next window of time. New Zealand it's four, Pakistan it's three. The big three are effectively back together again. Um, that's a, an old fashioned term now. It started about a decade ago, but it really does feel as though. But but yeah, like the point you are emphasising at the start here is that T Twenty cricket was meant to be the gateway drug, and we don't hear that language used very much anymore. Your quote here is the national boards have handed the keys to a self-interested few. The IPL franchises have been allowed to take over the house one T20 knees up at a time. Yeah, and I, I know that's going to annoy some people. I, I sort of fully expect that. But look, I think T20 has gone further than we thought it would uh, to the detriment of the game as a whole. I, li- I like T20 cricket. It has improved fielding, innovation in, in among batters, bowlers, slow balls, all those things. The game is now more colourful and vibrant because of T20. It has helped financially. There is there is no doubt about any of that. But private money has taken control of cricket and that with inevitable consequences. Businessmen are out for a, a buck. The players aren't signing central contracts, especially in places like West Indies and now even New Zealand. Someone like Trent Bolt isn't getting picked, you know, which, which devalued the series against England recently, by the way. Now, you may say this is the market speaking. A lot of people do say that. I say the market's skewed and the market has been allowed to be skewed by administrators who haven't pushed test cricket and have allowed private money to come in and take over uh, international boards. You know, the IPL franchises will soon be the ones issuing the no objection certificates to players. Dan Brettig's written about this at length recently and it's been good stuff and it's absolutely right. It'd come 2025, we could well face a situation where very good Australian players are asking Mumbai Indians or Delhi capitals to permission to go and play against uh, Sri Lanka in a test series. Is this what we want? It's not what I want. Some people do, but I think we have to be we have to be honest about where we're going as a game, and I don't think everyone is. Yeah, and this is why I admire these notes so very much. It's that you're willing to go out there and fight really hard for, um, we'll fight the corner of Test cricket really hard, knowing that there is something going on, whether it's through willful ignorance or or financial incentives, there aren't enough people talking about what's actually happening and it's happening before our very eyes. As you say, um, the window for most bilateral cricket will slam shut a bewildering act of self-harm. And that isn't something that England is immune to either. Now, like you, I love short-form cricket. I think it brings an enormous amount to test cricket. No one's disputing, I don't think, anymore that point. Maybe some around the margins who will never watch an over of pyjama cricket or, or whatever and will never accept the 100 or whatever. But Nevertheless, there there is a there is a pig being fattened right now for an IPL owner or IPL owners rather um, to eventually buy here in the hundred. That that seems like the ECB will eventually be contributing to the problem that's playing out in other countries. Absolutely, and they'll probably get a lot of money for it, and they will argue that that in itself justifies the hundred. Um, uh, but in my view, it won't. That 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 money will have a finite lifespan, and then we're, we'll be in a situation where a good month of the English summer will be. Um, taken over by private equity, guys who are just trying to make a buck. So do we want that? Does English cricket really want that? I I, I, I don't think many here do, actually. I think that test cricket still fills the grounds. And if English grounds were twice as big as, you know, so they were like the same size as capacity as India and Australia, I think we'd still fill the grounds for test cricket. I think that is still what gets people going in this country. The 100 has polarised people. I mean, perhaps polarised is wrong. I think there are more people against it than for it. Certainly the men's format, women's format's been great. I think there's some cynicism around and administrators pass through the game. They have five years at the top and their job is to make sure that the game doesn't fold financially during their stint. That is the problem. It's a bit like, you know, politicians who have sure. to ignore climate change for, because that's that's uh, that's a long-term problem. I think that there's some comparisons there that the cricket isn't 
being honest about the, the problems we face. Yeah, there's an on-my-watch kind of attitude, exactly. I reckon. And like Jeff and I have spoken a lot about this, that um, Mike Baird, as the new Cricket Australia chairman, seems to be all over this. I mean, he's talking the talk. I interviewed him on radio during the Border Gavaskar series recently, and, and it feels like he's well across this. The question really becomes, do uh, administrators in England and Australia, the two other members of the big three, have enough clout to stop what's going on, not only with private equity, but in countries that are subject to the, the worst of it? South Africa, you described their new T20 tournament as reducing a proud nation to a vassal state. I mean, they let Australia have a 3-0 walkover because it didn't suit their scheduling with their domestic T20 competition. I mean, it, it may sound like sort of thin edge of the wedge stuff, but it's already happening. It's a little bit like climate change, right? Like, I think you and I had a, a separate discussion last year saying that we get very terribly frightened about what climate change might mean for our kids' lives and our grandkids' lives and, and all the rest of it. But maybe the damage is already done. Well, so it might be for um, the the cricket world that we have so enjoyed for our whole lives. Yeah, well, I think it has, unfortunately. I mean, I, I just think that the, the decision to allow private equity in a few years back was was the start, and you, you can't go, you can't put that back in a bottle now. So I, I'm aware when I'm writing this stuff that I may be, it may be total idealism and naivety, and that's what I'll be accused of in some quarters. On the other hand, if you don't make a stand, it's, ne- it's never too late to stop the worst excesses, is it? Sure. And so. I would say that you can. The administrators can still find the bottle to, to, for example, say to Saudi Arabia, "Look, we're we're not just going to give you our players like they've done with the ILT20 in the UAE. You know, we're we're the people who who groom these guys. Nations outside the big three, what will they be producing cricketers for if they're not playing international cricket? They're not just going to produce them so that they can go off and and make packets for themselves." In, in T20 franchise competition. In an, empty sta- in an empty stadium in Abu Dhabi or whatever it is, like the UAE league that played out. What's, in it, for, what's yeah. in it for Sri Lanka? What's in it for West Indies? What's exactly. in it for the New Zealand board? So I think the big three, uh, England and Australia have to you know develop some balls and stand up to India a bit more. Now, England have been bending over backwards because they want Indian players in the 100. That's their big dream. They think that will sort of legitimise the 100 and, and pay for all the, the, the costs. I mean, and I think there are there are some good signs with the new ECB chair and chief exec, Richard Thompson and Richard Gould. I think there's something going on similar there here, is. by the way. I, I agree with you. Yeah. I think the, the, the new CA leadership and the new ECB leadership, they might be the last groups of administrators who can at least temper what's happening. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Thompson has talked about, for example, hosting Bangladesh. You haven't played anything yeah. since 2010. Now, that Great. may not be a terribly exciting prospect for your average sports fan, but it is. I think it's crucial for the overall ecosystem and health of international cricket. We need a healthy international game to produce these players for the T20 franchise tournaments. You know, there's a lot of short-sightedness there. I mean, Harry, you know, someone like Harry Brook, he learned his technique, the basis of his technique in Red Bull cricket, and that's what has allowed him to go out and expand on it and be what he has become. You know, he scores 100 off 55 balls for Sunrisers Hyderabad the other day, and suddenly he's accepted in India, having been written off, as he as he pointed out, <laughs> after a few failures rather bravely. So... Yeah, there has to be a bit more moderation, and I'm I'm hopeful that the the ECB and as you say CA are are aware of of where we're going, and we'll, we'll stop the worst excesses. You ended with a French anthropologist because it's you um, <laughs> about metro, metropolitan life being the same everywhere, and so it goes for for T Twenty leagues. If you eliminate the differences, then they're just what playing in different costumes but the same comp rolls on and this is not sort of an Indian beating up exercise by the way I mean we all love the IPL it's It's more that uh, when the IPL is just a a facsimile of it is created I don't know how many times a year where does it cap out the ML what's it called the Major League Cricket Cricket. soon enough the Saudi League inevitably the 100 if there's private equity in the big batch there could just be IPL leagues going around the whole time of the year one version or another of it and then yeah well I mean 
what then for diversity? And as you say, then uh, God bless Basball for proving there's life in the dear old dog yet. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it sounds a bit old fashioned there, don't I? But um, I think, yeah, I think that's one of my my main objections: this proliferation of all the T20s. It's sort of indistinguishable. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's some of the hitting is sensational, isn't it? Rinku scores thirty sure. at the last five balls the other day. That that stuff is is mind blowing. But if it's just a case of someone trying to hit more sixes than another, then for me. For me, that that isn't as interesting as the dramas that can unfold over five days. But I accept I'm perhaps losing that argument. Yeah, look, and I know we might cop criticism of being a couple of middle-aged white blokes, right, from India, from England, India, from England and Australia, who are, and and they should be, and by they I mean the Indian entrepreneurs and the Indian game should be allowed to grow however it sees fit, given that um, the Anglo axis that dominated world cricket for more than a century did what they wanted. But I mean, I think that we're equally as fixated on what's going on in in countries that have nothing to do with Australia and England's progress. You mentioned Bangladesh before. It's about the sustainability of the game writ large. Yeah, it's what does cricket want to be, really. That, that's a big question. And if cricket shrinks, there's already been complaints that the ICC don't sort of fulfil their sort of um, brief to, to globalise the game. But if it shrinks even further, then I don't think that is good for the game. I think the, the IPL will run out of sources to get their players from. Will the IPL just become all Indian with a bit of Australian in England, will that get a bit boring? Will it be boring if Test cricket is just England v Australia v India? I think it will. If diversity goes, then one of the charms of cricket goes, which is its flexibility. You can play over five days, you can play over three hours. Sure. And the way that you could have end that bit is that we're looking for the big ones to look after, the little ones is the comparison, or how you frame it, to avoid implosion, that there needs to be kind of a holistic attitude taken from, again, the same administrators. And, and you can look at that, one-day series that Australia hosted England in a couple of days after the T20 World Cup when all the England players were very quick to say how absurd the whole thing was only to go the next day to play in the T10. They weren't so knackered to play in that. So like, there's, there's a market forces question here too. Absolutely. The players, you know, they, they deserve some sympathy but at the same time they can't, they can't express sort of uh, exhaustion and then go off and play. I mean, that, that was an interesting moment. You know, Joss Butler kind of implying that he didn't greatly care that they'd lost 3-0. They'd come to Australia to win the T20 World Cup and they had another interesting one recently where England lost the T20 series in Bangladesh 3-0 and basically sacrificed that series because they didn't replace two injured players, Will Jackson, and Tom Abel, and they decided to try and find out whether Sam Curran could bat five or six in Asian conditions ahead of the World Cup. So bilateral white ball cricket seems even more irrelevant now. It's become a World Cup sport, hasn't it? Uh, and that, that's a concern, I think, that cricket becomes a bit like the I suppose tennis with its four majors or golf with its its majors and around that is built this sort of tour mentality so you you have a world cup every year you have a marquee test series or two and then around that is fits the the, the t20 franchise stuff well yeah what, what you described there about Bangladesh and the PSLs I mean the very fact that um, you've now got non-contracted England players who would love nothing more than to be established in the dressing room Sam Billings we had on the show recently is a good example of that, electing not to play for England when the opportunity was there because he knows that, well, he goes with the full blessing to, to do that. And maybe that's not the worst thing. Maybe it's not the worst thing that that, uh, that bilateral white ball cricket ends up being an opportunity to test and, and stress test what's possible ahead of a, a major tournament. But um, then there's Ben Stokes playing in the IPL at the moment with a body that's falling apart. Or not playing. Um, yeah. or, or not playing, as it were. But nevertheless, yeah. you know, bowling when he... Was, was not meant to or whatever it was meant to be and England still won that, that T20 World Cup last year with Stokes there at the end so it's kind of an ends justify the means thing Yeah and I'm not I don't mean to sound critical of the players I mean look if you're offered half a million pounds for three weeks work you're, of course, you, of course you're, you're going to take yeah, it yeah. Um, 
I guess that there's, a, there's this whole argument about, you know, we only have a short shelf life, the players say, but I mean, I, I have slightly more misgivings about that because if you're earning a million pounds a year for 10 years, you'll be, you're set for life, really. Sure. Uh, and you'll probably go into a, a plush commentary job or an IPL coaching gig or whatever. You can, st- you can keep earning. So I think that argument is sort of slightly overdone. Uh, but the players are being placed in an impossible position. I mean, you know, Richard Gould, the ECB chief exec, is talking about upping match fees which I think is quite sensible. You're going to have to. They're going to have to. Is they, they, what other lever have they got? No, they haven't. I mean, you, you've got a central contract and you're still not playing for England. So yeah. the central contracts are not fit for purpose anymore in the, in the current climate. England are lucky they've got the money to be able to do that with the players. The, the problem, of course, is these other nations who have got no clout, no say at all over their cricketers. You know, West Indies test team, I know they always beat England in the Caribbean, but generally speaking, they've they've fallen away hopelessly. And that that's a salutary tale. New Zealand now is, is worrying, isn't it? Bolt decides not to sign a contract. Um, other guy, Guptill did it. Other guys... Will, De Grand will De Grand Dom. So you've got, you, you know, you've got a nucleus of a good team there sort of vanishing because of market dynamics. So I don't know what the answer is, Colo. I think I'm, I'm, I'm a bit depressed about it all, really. I think the answer is that administrators have to be honest about what's going on. Some of them have to take a stand. They have to say, no more, we've got enough. Saturation point. We have to find ways of encouraging them to play international cricket. We have to we have to stress. Look, I mean, Stokes and McCullum, what they've done with the Test team is a, is is a different way of doing it. It's making Test cricket more attractive to the players. So someone like Liam Livingstone will go, yeah, I want to go to Pakistan and play that Test series rather than uh, the BPL or whatever. Uh, so that's another way of doing it. But it's difficult. The, the, the market forces are, are weighed against that that sort of scenario. It, it, isn't it funny that England have won a World Cup since you last published? And of course, this is effectively an English book, a global book, but an English tilt, if you like. And it, it doesn't get a mention in the first half a dozen pages because uh, there's so much to get through. But you know, they did win the T Twenty World Cup at the MCG last year with with Stokes, as I say, there at the end. They they are holding both trophies in, in men's cricket at the moment, uh, and they have cycled through a. Uh, a captain in that space of time as well with Owen Morgan hanging up the boots. There's a great piece um, from Johnny Lou uh, further into the book uh, about that. There's a, a nice line there from him saying that to describe, I'm, I'm going to misquote him here, but something like to describe Owen Morgan uh, as England's most important white ball captain is so substandard. It's like saying Buddha was a good Buddhist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, they did all of that England without Morgan, who was so crucial to galvanising that side over a decade. Yeah, and it's a great story. And actually, you're right about the, where it appears in the notes. I, I was writing, thinking, when am, I, when am I going to introduce the fact that England have won a World Cup? You know, <laughs> in any other year, that's that's headline news. But it, it just seemed that it was it took second place to what the the Test team was doing. The Test team were more exciting than the T20 team. And the, the irony was that Stokes come, comes in and plays two innings that he'd probably sacked his the Test teammate for playing them in the T20 <laughs> World Cup. So run a ball basically against Sri Lanka and yeah. Pakistan and was almost playing more responsibly as a T20 player than he was in Test cricket. So his kind of game nous came through chasing moderate totals. You know, I, I'm not sure he's quite the player you want for chasing 200 these days in T20, but certainly for managing a, a game, he is, he is immense. But yeah, so England hold both World Cups. I suppose, I think the fact that there have been two T20 World Cups in a row, England had two cracks at that crown, didn't they? Um, I think it's not that it devalues it, it's still a hell of an achievement, but it is slightly less it is slightly less of an achievement, I think, than it than it would have been had the, the, the normal cycle been there, the pre COVID cycle. Uh, I, th- I, mean, I say in my notes that if they win this, the the 50-over the World Cup in India this year, they can be considered the greatest white ball team of all time. I know some Australians may say, hang on, we won five World Cups. I'm talking about a concentrated period 
of the largely the same group of players winning both formats. Because I suppose the Australian side, they had that through line between 99, 2003 and 2007, there was no T20 World Yeah, so that's not their fault, but it's yeah. just that to, to keep it up. And as you say, the change of captain, we all thought, you know, last, last summer, Butler takes over and he wins four out of 11 completed yeah. white ball internationals at home. It take, that takes the trip of the, to the Netherlands out of the equation. And people think, hey, what are they doing? Well, actually, they were doing what they, they've become quite good at now is becoming a World Cup team. They were making decisions ahead of the T20 World Cup based on the summer. They weren't that fussed about the results. Matthew Mott, the new coach, explained that. And I think they're kind of doing the same thing now. They use that trip to Bangladesh almost as a sort of just to have a look at some of the guys ahead of the 50 over World Cup in India. So it wouldn't surprise me if they peak again for that. And Stokes... If, if his knee's fit, he comes out of the woodwork, comes out of ODI retirement for that. That'll be interesting see what happens there. I think India have to win that tournament to keep their fans happy. They haven't won a global event if you take the Champions Trophy out of the equation for 12 years. But I think England and India are looking like the two, the two favourites for that. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. Staying on Stokes, you, he's been named, or well, you've named him as the leading man in the world. It's a bit deeper into the book. Will McPherson wrote up that piece. I, I must say, it's an interesting decision. When I was asked to give my test team of the year last year for, I think, The Guardian and maybe Wisdom.com, I kind of forgot Stokes on both fronts because for all of what he's achieved as a leader in galvanising that side, I, I thought, oh, maybe he... Yeah, maybe he hasn't quite achieved enough to... Now, that's wrong. He did. You go and look at the numbers, it it warrants it. But a guy, as Will says, averaging 36 with the bat and 31 with the ball in test cricket doesn't necessarily leap off the page as a leading male player in the world. But it's everything else that that he's done. Even if he has retired from one-day cricket, there at the end in in the T20 World Cup final, his broader influence. And and now Stokes has been the leading man for three of the last four years of, of the Almanac. Yeah, and this year, for as you sort of alluded to there, for for different reasons, really not not runs or wickets, or certainly not just runs or wickets, though we can't ignore the T Twenty final World Cup winning innings. Sure. But for the it, he's he's done something that very few people have done over 100, nearly 150 years of Test cricket, which has changed the way that that game is perceived. You know, gen, the general wisdom has been you play in a certain way. I know that you've had great sides that the eighties West Indies, that the, the Aussies under under Steve Waugh and Ricky Ponting, who had great players. It, it was kind of inevitable that they do really well yeah. this England team have some do have a couple of great players they have some very good players and then there's some guys who wouldn't necessarily wouldn't have got anywhere near to those West Indies and Australian teams but that's what makes it so interesting that Stokes has sort of flicked a switch and changed the mindset I remember sitting in a pub with you in, in Hobart after the final Ashes test what 14 months ago not even that 13 months ago whatever it was and you know to think we'd be having this conversation about this particular group of players and it pretty much is the same group with the exception of Harry Brook and and a couple of others it's it's bewildering and brilliant stuff I guess the only other player you could have given the leading man to is Pat Cummins but it'll be if he does it this year won't it Ashes year World Cup year they've already had their, their tour to India which was offset for Cummins a little bit by not being there for the last couple of tests due to a, a personal um, a death in the family, rather. Yeah. But yeah, they, they feel like the two top dogs right now. They do. I mean, you know, sort of second guessing it is pointless. I mean, so of many course. things could happen. I mean, Virat Kohli could win it again. He's won it three times. Uh, him and Stokes are the two sort of leaders in the clubhouse at the moment. Right. Yeah, that, that's one of the beauties. Who can say? I mean, Cummins, I think, you know, he, his plan was win in India, win in England do well in the World Cup, maybe win it. That That is an all-time great year. And then you are on the, the pantheon forever in Australian cricket. So, you know, the Ashes 
shaping up is pretty important for him now. Another World Cup that got him, probably just before your publication date actually, was the Indian under-19s women winning. That feels significant. You draw the parallel. Others have too to, to the Indian men in 83 and the, the T20 side under Dhoni in, in 2007, which feels valid and we've seen what's already happened with the, the WPL. But equally, um, we've seen this week reports that the WPL uh, might um, take over the WBBL's window. Now, you know, I'm mindful of this. I follow women's cricket very closely, as you know. I'm mindful that the unsustainable growth we've seen in men's cricket could play out in women's cricket too. That They're not immune from the same scheduling pressures that exist. And I think um, it's, it, 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 well, the emphasis is on um, India being reasonable to everybody else and not seeing the women's game is but another vehicle for enormous private investment at the expense of the game at large. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point. I mean, at the moment, Indian women players can play in, in overseas events. That that differentiates them from the men. Um, will that continue? It remains to be seen. I mean, it's interesting that they called their tournament the Women's Premier League. Probably quite clever. You know, they haven't put India in there. They are sort of they are claiming it as the uh, predominant T Twenty competition in the world, with the kind of consequences that you, you mentioned there. You just hope that India sort of exercise responsibility with their power. I mean, restraint, they, restraint, yeah, <laughs> restraint. I mean, I really hope they do because th- this is a massive moment for women's cricket. I mean, the hundred yeah. felt like the first step. The women's hundred felt like the first step of that. And now, now that India have finally woken up to the the, the, the sort of power of women's cricket, I think partly I mean, partly motivated by the fact that Pakistan were making noises about starting their own women's competition. No um, doubt. Uh, you know, th- 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 it's never purely philanthropic when it when it comes to the BCCI. So uh, watch this space. Let's just hope that they they do exercise a bit more restraint. And then there's this broader growth outside of the um, outside of off Broadway, if you like, in women's cricket. Central contracts where they've never been. I've just returned from Fairbreak last night and and seen the the benefit of that firsthand and how sort of nourishing all that is. Where this um, where where the game is taking hold in in unusual parts of the world and and much of it is being driven by women. Yeah, I think I mentioned. Do I mention Brazil, Rwanda, Thailand, Zimbabwe? I mean, it's all all good news, very good news stories in women's cricket, which just goes to show what happens if you invest in it. I mean, for years, the, the sort of the mainstream, that the sort of small cabal of full members have basically said, "Well, it's a Commonwealth sport, really." I mean, it's not going to take off in in these other countries, but particularly places like Thailand and Brazil, where you have an indigenous, if you like, group of players, uh, that that is that is particularly interesting. Um, so the the the, the, the the potential for growth in women's cricket is very exciting. Yeah, it's not going to be growing in Afghanistan anytime soon, which is a tragedy of the of the last well last couple of years really when it comes to what's going going on over there more generally, but specifically with the Afghanistan women's side, most of them effectively in exile um, in Australia at the moment. We've seen commendable commentary from Australian administrators, for example. Uh, I think so anyway. And Jeff and I have talked about the sensitivities and complexities of this, but. Our view, and I'm interested in your perspective, is that it'll cap for nothing if Australia play Afghanistan in the Men's World Cup in India later in the year. Um, the only way that'll mean anything is if they if they don't play them when it means something, i.e. a World Cup. Yeah, I do take that point. I listened to that pod. I thought it was, it was one of your, your best ones, actually, because it, it, it summed up the, the, the difficulty and taking a firm position either side of it is, is, is really tricky. I mean, I the point I make in the notes about it is that because most of these Afghanistan women players are now in exile in Australia... Let's just treat Australia as a home away from home for them. Don't don't get too worked up about the fact that you you can't affect, you can't change the Taliban in Afghanistan. Let's just invest, give give them, give them the finances they would have got had they been at home, and let them set up in Australia. But what a great story that would be! And and wait to see with the you know the Taliban sort of disappears at some point. I mean that 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 may be uh, idealistic. I I think 
Some of the male players there are in a very difficult position. You know, Rashid Khan has got a bit of stick for sort of taking the the male perspective on that. But is he supposed to speak out against the Taliban? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Flippant gear Nightmare. change. I'm, I'm mindful we don't have all the time in the world today. Um, you're getting rid of man cads, Lawrence. What's going on, man? I thought you were one of our one of our listeners and, and, and you understood where we were coming from. There are so many man cad fans. I like Dave Tickner's perspective on this, by the way. If you just don't capitalise it and make it small M, Tickner <laughs> writing the, um, the the social media section and, and um, reflecting on the glory days of the Deeply Sharma week with Pete Delapanna and the Arrows and all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah. But um, your view is Mitchell Stark's view, actually, that he advanced last year with, with Dan Bredig in, in the Herald that you could go to a, a short run model as opposed to a dismissal to, to settle things down a bit so that's that, that's at odds with the MCC yeah it is I mean I, I've I used to be of the just stay in your crease school of thought and I think perhaps why I've started to feel uncomfortable about it I think because when I go to watch a game of cricket I want to see the bowler bowling to the batter that is the essential drama of cricket I don't want anything to get in the way of that I don't consider it dramatic course I know people think a man can I won't call it man can run out at non-strikers end is, sure. is skillful don't see that really. Um, so I want. So I want to maintain. I, I, my, my position is I, I'm essentially the same as proponents of the run out of the non-striker's end, which is keep batters in the crease. I want to do that. I think calling one short would would do that because batters would soon they they, they realise they've lost a run and that can cost them the match. But you you take you don't detract from the drama of the bowl of the batter. We don't end up with all these pretty vitriolic culture wars that happen every single time it happens I mean I, my heart sinks whenever one of these dismissal happens because I know that Twitter is going to be an absolute it just means it just means our days. lives for the next 12 the next 12 24 hours uh, <laughs> are informed by that debate because we all get tagged into these things and we probably don't help ourselves with this either do we really because we always get involved everyone gets involved uh, and it, it, what, what I regret slightly is it's become a sort of culture clash yeah. that, and that is a shame so I, I, I want the bowlers to concentrate on the stumps at the other end. Let the umpire. The, the third umpire is already monitoring the front foot for no balls. It won't be too hard to see if the batter's straight out of his crease. Uh, and at club level, I'm only interested in the major transgressions. If someone has just sort of absent-mindedly dragged their bat up a couple of inches, I mean, who gives a damn really. So the umpire can the umpire can say, look, you've gone two feet out. That's you know that's a short run. What's the problem with that? Yeah, I think where it'll probably get to in practice is that everyone will back up that for at Coley, and the game will change that way, which is. Coley furiously watching the bowler as the ball's coming it out may of well happen, and yeah. taking well, off great. an Olympic So batters will stay in the so crease. So batters will stay in so the great. crease. So it'll, That's it'll what we both, there. we all want that. Absolutely. Ebony Rayford-Brent, what an amazing human being. Uh, just endlessly inspiring with what she's done with Ace. Last year you said that Tom Harrison should give his bonus from the 100 to Ebbs and Ace. But, well, she didn't need it, did she? Uh, 44 scholars. I didn't know this. 44 scholars from Ace are now in the county age group system. People told her, she said in the book a couple of years ago that people told her this couldn't be done. Well, she's doing it. And it's not just a race thing either because uh, she's uh, clocked, and as you have this in your notes as well, that it's a class thing as much as it is a race thing. Yeah, uh, and you know that's quite a useful sort of counter to some of the criticism of what's going on. The the idea that it's somehow you know, woke or whatever whatever phrase people want to use. You know, for, for a long time people have said, you know, the the, the African Caribbean community in the UK has lost interest in cricket because all playing football. Uh, we we don't need to bother with them. Well, Ebbs <laughs> has turned around and in the space of a couple of years has got people into county age group systems. They're out there all along. I, I said in the notes, they're out there all along waiting to be reached. And what she has achieved is sensational. It puts, frankly, the ECB to shame. The governing body couldn't do anything about this. Ebbs has done it off her own back in a couple of years. I mean, it's, it's remarkable, really. There's the good and the bad, the light and the dark, Aramco, uh, the latter. We, we've discussed the Saudi Arabian ambition that's been advanced this week, well and truly after your print deadline, but the ICC opened a door to this last year, really, didn't they? Having Aramco shamelessly plastered all over the, the World Cup. There was that line on the 
the accreditation, which I spotted out in Australia, that if you criticise sponsors, you could lose your lose your pass. I, I gather that's been dealt with by one of our colleagues, that that won't be the case again at, at this year's World Cup. But the idea that, that cricket is caring about its carbon footprint is comical, outside of individual organisations, like the MCC, as it happens, who are putting in the yards, and some clubs who are doing great work. I know at Surrey they do tremendous work, and there'll be others too. But when you uh, realise how dwarfed that is by... Um, having a, an organisation like Aramco um, funding the game, you just, just throw your head back, don't you? Yeah, it's a bit depressing. I mean, what do they have some plastic recycle plastic bottles recycling depots at all the grounds, as if that was going to sort of make a dent in the? I mean, it, it, some people think Aramco have contributed four percent of all greenhouse gases since 1965. I mean, that that that, that is one estimate. Um, ICC are defensive of, and actually, interesting when the Saudi Arabia story came up in the last couple of weeks, you're suddenly thinking hang on, that you know, you're putting the pieces together a bit and saying, is cricket cozying up to Saudi Arabia for a particular reason? It, it, it's all slightly sinister. And cricket's always been very poor. I mean, the ICC do acknowledge that they that they have been behind the times on, on climate change. They argue that some, of the, some full members aren't as interested in it as others, but that's not really an excuse. I mean, cricket's carbon footprint is monstrous. Players fly around the world all the time. Players, single players fly in and out left, right and centre of tournaments. I don't think cricket has really structured tours in an eco-friendly way, for example. You shouldn't be flying into Perth, then across to Brisbane, then down to Adelaide. And, you know, everything in India as well should be organised much more holistically and naturally to cut down the air miles. Cricket's very poor like that. Cricket can't solve climate change, but it can do its part. Yeah, it's incremental isn't it? All of this. Uh, the environment section later in the book with Tanya focus well, it's where we're speaking uh, the same week that there have been the protests at the Crucible. We had a version of that at Lords last year with JP Morgan. I, I, I mean, I expect we'll, we'll see more of that with Extinction Rebellion and Stephen Fry, who's the boss of the MCC, who's supportive of their work. So, it, you know, there is, there is action uh, inside the game, but it, it doesn't feel like it's a coordinated part of what we do and, and I'm glad that Tanya Aldred still has that, that space in the book each year and is it the uh, writing prize each year goes to this as well a piece uh, by a chap called is it Dan Connell Dan, I, Dan Crowley Dan Crowley, Crowley. yeah Crowley. Dan Crowley that's it yeah. I, I, um, I found him on social media last night a, a student from Melbourne who was bewildered by what he's seen at the MCG, the People's Ground, with Aramco and, and the betting agencies that, that are partnered up with cricket in Australia. And Jeff and I have been banging the drum about this for forever, really, but it was nice that you saw fit to, to recognise that. Again, I'm, I'm aware that we don't have as much time as we normally would, so I'm going to keep skipping through and moving from, from thing to thing. So you found time to have a nice little nugget there about cycling to Amstelveen, by the way, as well, that, that <laughs> lovely little one-day tour. But, you know, on the other side of that, there'll be no England one-day tours of Amstelveen and no. there'll be no trips to Holland anymore because the World Cup Super League's hitting the fence That's it. after That's the it. tournament this year. So it was a one and done. I would love to think that cricket is big enough and smart enough to realise that the European nations can play each other a little bit more, maybe in a quadrangular T20 tournament where England B... Go, you know, like, there are ways to for England to play its role in, in their own region. Yeah, and it's, it's, it was a great trip. Forget the fact that I enjoyed cycling to the ground. Um, that, that's not a reason to stage a series, but it was the whole setup was just incredibly relaxing. There were plenty of Dutch fans in there. Yep. Um, it's, it's a great little ground. I mean, England almost scored 500. History yep. was almost made. Um, why not encourage them? There is a history of cricket in the Netherlands, and now they, they, the, the World Super League is over, and we, who knows what will happen with bilateral ODI cricket. They're going to get squeezed more and more. It seems, it seems a great shame. Nice that, as ever, you finish your notes with a, a section about the county championship. Leah Norwell, last year, is nine for on the final day and the proliferation of streaming. There's a piece in the book in deeper into it about um, county streams, which I'm personally quite passionate about, but also about collectivism. 
about counties coming together and, and realising that, you know, memberships that permit you to go to more than one club are a good thing. Well, maybe the, the same um, attitude should be applied to to streaming services to make sure that there's all a basic minimum standard that they all uh, are able to reach because that, that feels like a, a great opportunity for county cricket to, to get more fans than those who can, you know, go to a game that, as we know, takes four days to play. Yeah, I think I mentioned Warwickshire who um, sort of liaised with several other counties so they've got this reciprocal membership deal you can turn up probably yeah and it makes total sense I mean it goes back to the point we we're making earlier about sort of India and, and responsibility it feels like we need socialism at a time when this uber capitalists have taken over you know cricket does need that kind of collaborative effort now uh, and the counties are starting to do it uh, the Queen died last year the other big death I suppose in cricket but not I, 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 had you said to, or had we said 18 months ago that part one would be dominated by um, shame worn followed by the Queen we think well something um, wrong has happened re-worn and, and something quite predictable with the Queen but Patrick Kidd has a, a series of great anecdotes there I, I don't know how we worked this out but Donald Carr who was England captain albeit briefly um, when uh, George VI died and took the first wicket of the Elizabethan era since Francis Drake against Spain in 1588, but nice work from Patrick. Look forward to collaring him later tonight at the dinner. The war in Ukraine is the third thing you tackle. Uh, Alex Preston writes a great piece about the history of cricket in Ukraine. It's a familiar tale in a way about the um, subcontinental diaspora. Great tale about how they've grown it. And then Stuart Meeker, who I've had the great pleasure of working with a bit in the last two years and driving all the way to Ukraine when his career ended as a county cricketer, former England player, took a van full of supplies, drove over there and, and... broadly speaking, help with the resistance movement. That's right. I mean, you know, we, we accuse cricketers sometimes of not having a hinterland, having no no interest in the real world. Well, Stuart Meeker saw what was going on in, in Ukraine and, and packed, packed a van with essentials, drove for a thousand miles, slept for an hour in a McDonald's car park in Germany, turned up at the Polish-Ukrainian border and, and helped out and then went and got rid of all the, all the stuff in the van and, and, and went and got more. And it, it opened it, it will open anyone's eyes, wouldn't it, if you see refugees coming coming into the country from a war-torn uh, a wanton country like Ukraine, uh, and he tells his own story very movingly in, in this year's wisdom. Yeah, and and critical of of uh, the British government, and at the same time heaping praise on the German government. I, I strongly recommend it to anyone who who picks up the, the book. The leading woman in the world is Beth Mooney for the second time in three years. One of the original final word favourites, Beth Mooney. So we were thrilled to see uh, that. The five cricketers of the year: Tom Blundell, uh, Ben Folkes, Harmon Precourt, Daryl Mitchell, and Matty Potts. I think we had a Twitter exchange about Blundell and Mitchell when I declared in like in July. They must be in the Wisdom Five. You're like, hold your horses, but they have. Yeah, you were they, right. They, they, they have made you're it right, there, I it? suppose. Harmon Preet's probably the most obvious of the five, despite not doing her finest work until late, uh, would have been late September, uh, that extraordinary century she made down in Canterbury. But, um, but yeah, um, what a legacy she's leaving as an Indian leader. Yeah, it's astonishing. I mean, it was surprising, actually, to, to, to learn that India hadn't won a one-day series in England, the women's team, yeah. since 1999. They won 3-0. She scores 143 not out of 111 balls at Canterbury. India should have won the Commonwealth Games, let's be honest. Yep. Uh, she was botched leading the it. charge. They botched it. So she, she should have had a gold medal hanging around her neck. Uh, but uh, some, some people will say she deserved extra kudos for the, her part in the run-out of Charlie Dean at Lords. Other people will say... I shouldn't have made her one of the five because of that. So <laughs> I kind of kept that bit out of it. Um, but I think, you know, regardless of what happened that day at Lords, she was still, for me, a fairly straightforward choice. We're never going to get to be able to get through all this today, but a couple of things on the way through before saying goodbye. Great idea, getting Neil Harvey to write a piece 75 years after the Invincibles tour. So 75 summers since 1948. That was just outstanding stuff. You know, the idea of a, a kid 
jumping on a boat with a bunch of war veterans for 28 days. You kind of lose that with the Harvey story Absolutely. that he's got like memories of World War II. There aren't many people left and indeed he's the, the final invincible, as it were, um, you know, collecting wisdom with John Houghton, always the sort of thing I would like. Your collection of photos from the 1970s, that's the third decade you've done, yeah. 50, 60, 70, so a nice feature over the last little while and uh, the freaker. Um, from Lords in, in 75, getting another mention in Wisdom. Must be like its 50th mention. Michelangelo was called as well. So bizarre. <laughs> uh, I've already mentioned that Owen Morgan has a piece written by Johnny Lou, which is predictably brilliant. Um, cricket and Autism with Tanya Aldred. Again, what I love about part one is that you can commission essays from all over the... You know, all over the cricketing universe, and I never knew anything about that till reading it and the work that's being done specifically in Western Australia. So, uh, again, one one that I can recommend. Um, I haven't yet read Emma John's piece about is it cricket and Jane Austen? Jane Austen, it is. Um, but I'm sure it's worth it. I oh, always yeah. like Emma's. Sort She's of, a lovely uh, writer. Different perspective on everything, and again, I'll, I'll collar her at some point later this evening. Uh, this is all uh, uh, all en route to saying that well done, bringing back the Wisden Trophy. I thought what happened the other year was disgraceful. Uh, uh, and I, I love how you explained why it was required to come back. Um, so the Wisdom Trophy will go to the, the test performance of the year. Best those twin tons at Edgbaston. Could have been any of those. Had you said, oh, it's the Leeds 100. I think the Leeds 100 is the best century I've seen this decade. You know, um, I know it's a relatively small sample size, but the last 10 years or so. And the 100 at Nottingham put the whole best ball thing going in the first place. So yeah, a fitting yeah. winner. Yeah. Um, so easy for you to adjudicate, I suppose, on that front. But the decision to hand them out retrospectively until when the first Wisdom Trophy was played for between England and, and the West Indies. Well, that, what no, fun actually, that is. Well, we go back to... Yeah, we, so we go back to the first year of Test cricket. Sure, sure, sure. But I mean, you got, yeah. I assume you've got to stop when you get to the... No, no, we'll keep... it. So next year's Wisdom will go up to the, the present day. Oh, right. I just yeah. assumed you were going to, like, give a window where it wasn't. No, because because the old Wisdom Trophy was specifically for England West Indies Test Series. We've We've rebranded... We've, you know, with, with the help of MCC, have, have sort of decided to keep the name of the Wisdom Trophy alive, recommission a, a trophy, and, and kind of back Test cricket. That's the idea. We're, we're trying to celebrate Test cricket. Anyone can win it, a man or a woman. It's across the calendar year. Okay, an English person has won it this year, but yeah, it was pretty hard to look beyond what Bairstow did. Edgbaston. I mean, England chased 378 as well for three. They yeah. could probably chase 500 the way they were going. Sensational performance, really. So that that was uh, that, that was also a sort of easy one for me. I mean, I, I take your point about his other games, but you scored 200s and you chased 378. Yeah, that was and it good. felt like a final, didn't it? Because it was one-off test against India at Edgbaston. It did a bit. was happening that week. I loved even more that 1933, Father Marriott, <laughs> uh, one test match, 11 wickets. A lot of final word listeners will know all about that because Jeff and I have uh, went into enormous depth on, on story time about it before. But that you that you saw fit to, because that, that, that quirk where Larwood's best work came in 32 out of the 32-33 and um, but even 32 doesn't go to Larwood either it goes to Stan McCabe from right. 187 uh, in a game Australia lost the Australia lost of course and but he was the only person who played body line with any sort of you know gumption yeah, so no, this, to look beyond that this must have been fun Nutty Martin 1890 Nutty Martin. At the, at the no, some great names came out of course Bannerman starts it all in 1877 yeah, um, yeah that, that was actually quite good fun going back and there was some bit of heated arguments we had a, a good <laughs> argument actually about um uh, the the uh, Jimmy Matthews who took two hat tricks yep. in a Test match and I, I, I he got in because I could I had the final say and said look two hat he's the only person ever in two thousand Test matches to take two hat tricks in a Test match some of the others said yeah but it was the tail and you know you, th- what about you know Jack Hobbs who got one hundred and seventy at Melbourne the same year I'm like look this was unprecedented so he gets in it's a, it's a slightly it's a slightly sort of left field choice that one but I bet no one ever takes two hat tricks in a Test match again. two hat tricks in a day.
Two even better. Two hat tricks yeah. in a day. I'm going to wrap this up as much as I would love to keep talking to you about so many bits and bobs. Um, the, we we've already discussed the you know the the, the media section bias, Dave Tickner's social media bit, but that's always a must read. Robert Winder, who um, interesting perspectives on TV driving more than. Um, more than just money decisions, but editorial decisions as well. Editorial by that, I mean like cricketing decisions, the McCullum key uh, calls and, and all the rest. Says nice things about Norcross, which we appreciate <laughs> in these parts. Get stuck into Simon Heffer, which we also appreciate in these parts. James Gingell says nice things about Jeff and me. Uh, which, which he is, always uh, does. Which is cool. We, we like that. You know, the usual segments that you would uh, know and love if you're wisdom aficionados like Fraser Stewart on the laws. The obituaries with not only the Queen but Queen Victoria also getting an obituary. There's a new section, the women who were forgotten uh, or the women who were missed, um, which will probably make Simon Heffer angry again. And then all the rest of the book in, in the usual way. Deep into the Almanac Part 9 where a lot of our listeners go to when they're giving Jeff and me clues for for our story time episodes 50 years ago Wilfred Rhodes died that I learned I did not realize he lived to such an age 50 years ago um, Jack Iverson killed himself I did know that and 50 years ago there was a 24-hour marathon at Cambridge where two sides played for 367 overs that's giving me ideas for a fundraiser for the Lord's Tab so so what's this space played in that game who Shield Berry Shield played in that game is Shield there tonight uh, I don't think he is, no. don't think he is. Well, no. we'll, we'll, we'll collar him at some point. Yeah. Index of Unusual Occurrences. Earthquake Didn't Stop Play. That was my favourite. That's on page 16, 16. Oh, and in the 1947 edition, J.F. Craps 102 for Gloucestershire versus Essex at Brentwood, not Bristol, nor Brentford, as stated in last year's edition. Um, funny story, that. At Vicious Wedding last year, I went to Brentwood instead of Brentford in the cab and it cost me about 150 quid. Oh, really? So you're not the only one to... So I'm not the only one. Foul. I'm not the only one. That makes me feel better about that erratum. Lawrence, uh, <laughs> we're never going to be able to do the whole book, but this is a tour de force. Thank you. Thank you and the MCC, really, the statement the MCC put out the other week along similar lines for being so strong on on where the game's going. If not for people like you, then I just think this whole thing would drift away, especially when it comes to test cricket. I think the, the megaphone that Wisdom's got is now more important than ever before. So congratulations on edition 160, your 12th in charge. And um, may you keep doing this for a long time yet. Thanks so much for having me on, Adam. I'm, I'm going to keep using that megaphone for as long as I've got this job. Thanks so much. Final word with Adam Collins. Thanks again to Lawrence Booth for always being so good to us. I kind of brushed past that bit about uh, the mention, the citation, if you like, of Jeff and me. Uh, they, James Gingell, the podcast reviewer, said that our episode devoted to Shane Warne last year was the best episode of a pod made in 2022. So we were really appreciative of that, as we always are when getting uh, a mention in the good book. Sorry about the rushed last 10 minutes or so there. We both realised that time was running out and I didn't want to just uh, come to an abrupt halt. So we we uh, tried to squeeze a few topics in briefly, so I hope that that sounded okay. But I can only recommend it to you, the Wisdom Cricketers Almanac. I think if you subscribe, it comes down to £25 locally, so half price, and the hard copy in Australia comes out soon, but you can get the digital edition from all the usual Wisdom places. If you like what Jeff and I do, and I hope you do, if you're listening this deep into the episode, patron.com forward slash the final word by uh, subscribing there. You can join our Discord channel, which is, as we always say, the nicest place on the cricketing internet, an awful lot better than Twitter and other places like that. So many people have enthusiastically supported our effort to run the Edinburgh Half Marathon on the 
28th of May for the Lord's Taverners. And as I think I mentioned on the Fair Break episode as well, there is a group of us who are going to be watching the London Marathon this weekend as well. So there's a link in the show notes today if you wish to donate to that, the Lord's Tabs. We're trying to raise 5,000 quid for them across these runs that we're doing at the moment. I think Richard McNally also ran the Manchester Marathon on the weekend as well. So we're all out pounding the pavement at the moment and we're doing it all for the Lord's tabs okay that's it for me Uh, as i mentioned off the top jeff and i will be back with the weekly show that will probably end up in your feeds on friday or thereabouts and that'll be discussing among other things the australian men's ashes test squad this has been the final word i'm off to dinner in the long room thanks for listening talk again soon bye-bye